Hi there everyone, welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century, from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK, that is at Hits21UK. Uh, you can email us too. Just send it on over to hits21podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We are currently looking back at the year 2004. This time we'll be covering the period between the 5th of September and the 9th of October in 2004. Looking back to last week, I thought the poll was going to be a bit tighter than it was, but these words walked away with it in the end so well done to natasha benningfield on that Ah. commiserations to the others i think that was the first week maybe ever where honestly anything could have won it i really was not sure which one was going to win last week so yeah well done natasha you picked a tough week there yeah i feel like this week might be quite similar yeah i agree and of course we can't start this week's episode without mentioning uh the fact that dj casper Sadly, died mm. this week uh, at the age of fifty-eight. I just—it's such a sad coincidence that all of this would happen just as we finished talking about him. And yeah, it's just—it's always sad to lose fifty uh, twenty-one alumni because we, we obviously lost Paul Catamol a few months ago, and it just—it's um, a weird feeling, isn't it, when someone from this era goes that it's like, gosh, I grew up with this person. Time is passing, and um, faster than it should. He was only 58. Um, very, very sad to hear, but yeah, I mean, I know we weren't the kindest of our Cha-Cha slide. We didn't, to be fair, we didn't like tear it a new one either, but it did bring a lot of people a lot of joy. You know, we've all got memories of that song. It's it's so ubiquitous. Like, it's so, so famous that you have to give that credit, and um, his legacy is assured because of that. So, yeah, I was very, very sad to hear this, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right that his legacy is assured. Like, when um, when your article came up on Radio 1, Rob, everyone was collectively, oh, it's like, oh, there's this song. Like, yes. yeah, everyone, as much as it's kind of, um, it's, it's a one-hit wonder and he never really impacted the charts in any other way, everyone remembers this. Everybody has some form of experience with this, be it, you know, as a chart listener, or if you've been to a party at any point in the last 20 years, you know this song, and it will live on in that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, bye-bye to uh, DJ Casper, and, yeah, rest easy. Yeah. On to this week's episode, and as always, we're going to give you some news headlines from around the time that the songs that we're looking at in this episode were at number one in the UK. A Fathers for Justice campaigner dressed as Batman breaches security at Buckingham Palace and scales the outside of the building. Jason Hatch, a 33-year-old man from Gloucestershire, is said to have, quote, legged it past armed guards before climbing up to a balcony. (laughs) No members of the royal family were in attendance at the time. And meanwhile, British hostage Ken Bigley is beheaded by militants in Iraq. At the House of Commons, a brawl breaks out after pro-hunting protesters break into the chamber to stop a vote that eventually saw MPs ban fox hunting in the UK in July 2006. 
Although Prime Minister Tony Blair did later admit in 2010 that he regretted the outcome of the vote. I didn't. Don't overthink it, Tony. <laughs> and in America, Hurricane Ivan produces land wind speeds of 165 miles per hour, resulting in 124 deaths and $26 billion worth of damage. The worst of the storm severely affected the West Indies, Central America and several southern US states. Meanwhile in Russia, 335 people are killed when a school in the southern town of Beslan is attacked by 32 militants. The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. The Terminal for one week, Open Water for one week, Collateral for one week, and Wimbledon for two weeks. And Harry Hill becomes the narrator of You've Been Framed. You ready for this? You ready for this? Big moment. <laughs> ITV launches The X Factor with judges Simon Cowell, Louis Walsh and Sharon Osbourne. Nine acts including G4, Tabby Callahan, Two to Go, <laughs> two to go I remember Two to Go, and Steve Bruckstein make it to live shows which run from late October until the middle of December. Something tells me we'll be mentioning The X Factor in the future. Mm. And also, the pilot episode of Lost airs in America. It is the most expensive pilot episode in TV history up to that point, and remains the best pilot episode in TV history. It's way up there. I think it's way up there with the likes of... My favourite pilot episode is Breaking Bad. I think that the pilot episode of Breaking Bad is just like your ultimate, like... Yeah, I want to know more about this series. But Lost is way up there for me. I really, really love that pilot. Absolutely no competition. And this surely will be my only opportunity ever to plug Flashback, a Lost podcast, which uh, myself yeah. and my friend did, where we reviewed every single episode of Lost, because it's one of my favourite shows ever. If you've never watched it, Lizzie, it's amazing. Go and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Meanwhile, the 59th Emmy Awards take place, with The Sopranos winning Outstanding Drama and Arrested Development winning Outstanding Comedy. Kelsey Grammer and James Spader win the Lead Actor Awards, while Sarah Jessica Parker and Alison Jenny win in the Best Actress categories. Okay, Andy, how are the UK album charts doing? Oof, well, it is busy this week. I have got no less than six albums to tell you about. Because uh, nothing stuck around at number one. We've got six consecutive weeks with a new album at number one, uh, which I'm not sure has ever happened before. So get ready for this. First of all, we've got The Libertines with The Libertines, which was at number one just as we finished last week, seeing us in. And then we've got Natasha Bedingfield, last week's winner um, with Unwritten. Her debut album there obviously had a title track of the same name, which is much better than these words, but never mind, we'll never get to discuss that. That was number one for one week and went three times platinum. That was then replaced at the top, again for one week, by Out of Nothing by Embrace, which went two times platinum. I've never heard that album in my life. Has anyone listened to that? Yes. Um, Is it good? I think that... I'm just going to refresh my memory, but I'm pretty sure that Ashes comes off that album. And Ashes was a song that was prominently featured on a soundtrack to, I want to say, FIFA 05 or 06 or something like that. But yeah, Ashes is nice. Yeah, Ashes is off the album, and Gravity, I know, because that was very prominently featured in an emotional moment on Gavin and Stacey. But uh, that's all I know, really, yeah. But enough about Embrace, because... 
the one week later at number one, it's American Idiot by Green Day Oof. arriving on the scene. I've got Lost and American Idiot in the same week. Oh my god. It got to number one four days after Lost started. This is the best week of my life. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Despite going eight times platinum, being the third biggest album of the year in the UK and probably one of the most influential albums we've ever covered so far, it actually only had one week at number one. Uh, never returned to number one. But yes, American Idiot, uh, which I'm sure we'll mention again at some point. After that, it's one week at number one for Joss Stone with Mind, Body and Soul. One week at number one again and went three times platinum. And then finally, we've got R.A.M. with Around the Sun, which uh, only went gold, actually. Uh, It's during that dubious club. It went gold. Yeah, so a really busy period. Um, To be fair, none of them like particularly classics apart from American Idiot. And I do wish that we got a number one out of American Idiot, but we don't. But yeah, that's it this week, yeah. I think Around the Sun um, from R.E.M. is it's not... It's kind of... They're on the outs a little bit by that point. You know, they've had their last, like, big hit, which I think was Bad Day, which I think was a couple of years before this. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, which I think got into the top ten. But yeah, they have kind of hit the wall a little bit and are thinking about calling it a day. Because uh, I think they only do two albums after this point, uh, which are both yeah. okay. And I seem to remember one of them, uh, they wrote the opposite way around in the sense that throughout their career, they'd written music first and applied lyrics to them. And then they decided to write the lyrics first for their last album, I think, which was Collapsing oh, to right. Now, and then write the music afterwards. Um, yeah. <laughs> when you said... <laughs> <laughs> when you said write it the opposite way around, I thought you meant like like that would have been interesting to hear. Um, Lizzie, how are things on the US charts? Well, there are only three more number one singles in America for the remainder of 2004. Unlike us, where we've got about seven or eight yeah. left. Yeah. But yeah, uh, the first of which is Goodies by Sierra, which got to number one in the second week of September and stayed there for seven weeks. It also performed well in the UK, but that is a discussion for another time. The album's chart is much busier at this time. Like First up this week, we have Tim McGraw, whose album Live Like You Were Dying got to number one for two weeks and was eventually certified four times platinum in the US despite failing to chart over here in the UK. Continuing on the country theme is Alan Jackson, whose album What I Do got to number one for one week. It was certified platinum in the US, but again, failed to chart in the UK, because it's a country album, and we don't like country over here. I do. Oh, well, (laughs) you're on your own there, kid. And finally this week, Nelly scored his third consecutive number one album with Suit, which got to number one for one week, and which was released simultaneously with a contrasting album called Sweat, which peaked at number two the same week. With that, Nelly became the first artist ever to score the number one and number two album in the US simultaneously, selling a combined 737,000 copies in its first week. Suits went three times platinum in the US, but only got to number eight on the UK albums chart, despite the lead-off single hitting number one on the UK charts. 
Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that single? Oh, yes, nice. I will do just that because the first song that we are going to be discussing this week, thank you both for those reports, but we're moving on to this. This is My Place, double A side with Flap Your Wings by Nelly. Released as the two lead singles from his jointly released third and fourth studio albums titled Sweat and Suit, My Place, Flap Your Wings is Nelly's tenth single overall to be released in the UK and is second to reach number one. And this is not the last time that we'll be coming to Nelly on this podcast. My Place, Flap Your Wings first entered the chart at number 88, reaching number one during its third week on the charts, knocking Natasha Bedingfield off the top spot. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 55,000 copies, beating competition from Leave, Get Out by Jojo, which got to number two, Sunshine by Twister, which got to number three, Gravity by Embrace, which got to number seven, and You Should Really Know by Pirates, which got to number nine. Which we mentioned a few episodes back. Yes, yes we did. Um, When it was knocked off the top of the charts, My Place slash Flap Your Wings dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 13 weeks. The song is currently officially certified silver in the UK as of 2023. So, Andy, um, My Place and Flap Your Wings, you can go at them in any order you like. (laughs) Oh, can I? Yay. Um, so, um, I'm going to caveat this with two things first. First of all, I really, I, just to say, I really don't like having to start the episode with immediate negativity about the first song. I feel like it kills the vibe, but I have to be Well, I can to take myself. over if you want. I feel like I'm slightly more positive on this song oh, than no, you are. Oh, no, I'll say my piece and then I'm going to vacate the floor because I don't have that much to okay. say. Okay. But, um, the other thing I want to caveat with it as well is that I'm not the audience for this, obviously. Like, I'm a British, white, like, teenage gay boy at this time. This is not my vibe. But, all those things are still true now, actually, except I'm not teenage. But anyway, yeah, so, with that said, every time I've listened to this, I've disliked it more and more. 
Um, I really wanted to give it a chance, and I did give it a chance, but um, no, don't like this at all. There's a few reasons for that. First of all, I think I've mentioned in the past that there's a few songs that are just like this early noughties R&B genre that like just typify it in every way. One of them is Dilemma by Nelly and Kelly. And this song is so similar to Dilemma and um, not in a positive way. It's just, it seems ridden with every early noughties R&B cliche with those hand claps and with the kind of general sense of like, Oh yeah, behind it, you know, just, just, oh, just sort of needless <laughs> swagger about things that don't need swagger. Um, it goes on for an absolute eon. It just never ends. Um, has about like five different sections, which are kind of freeform from each other, and also the lyrics are a total mismatch for the music. That it, you know, it's got the. The musical content of of like dilemma, where it's like, oh yeah, come be with me, and don't we love each other? But the lyrical content is like something out of the room, where you know he's like spying on his girl because he's so obsessed with the idea that she's with someone else. Um, it's just unpleasant. I don't like this at all. Um, I I will say that like again, it's not for me, and also. It's clearly had a lot of work put into it. I don't think it's just a low effort bang it out as a single. Like it does have quite a nice sound to it if you're into that sort of thing. But I'm not really into this sort of thing. Um, and I, I do feel like it's getting an unfair crack of the whip from me because as soon as I heard how this song sounded, I was just like, oh, not this. <laughs> and so that's you know that's just my personal opinion. But you know. My personal opinions, what here people are here to listen to, along with you two. So that's mine, which is that, um, to sum it up, basically, if I did go over to someone's place and they put this on, I'd probably leave. Um, but <laughs> just to briefly touch on Flap Your Wings as well, I've got less than nothing to say about that. That just does absolutely nothing for me. Um, that is filler. I don't really see why that's a, why it's a double A side, to be honest. If you compare it against Thunderbirds 3AM last week, where it's like two very different songs, both, I think, very, very successful. Like, yeah, I can see why this is a double A side. But this, like... Huh, why is Flap Your Wings a single? Like, does anyone have any real love for that song? So maybe convince me otherwise. Um, I'm going to flap my wings and fly away from this failure. So, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Lizzie, how about you? I thought it was quite obvious of why this is a double A side. Because he has two albums to promote. That is true, and I'm so stupid. That is true, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> so now you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, just to preface this, I'm so gutted that Leave Get Out by Jojo didn't get to number one. Same. I love Same. that song so much. Mm, it's a good song. <sighs> but anyway, um, I do agree with a lot of your points, Andy, but I would say that I do like this better than you seem to. Nah, that's going to be difficult. I'm, yeah, I mean, I know you say you don't like this sort of thing. I'm kind of a sucker for it, even though I can admit when there are obvious flaws with it, like there are in this song. Um, to start with the positives, I really like the instrumental with the, the Patti LaBelle sample. Um, I think the production of it is kind of, you can't really fault it, as usual. Um, Patti LaBelle again, some- by the way. Dilemma. Yeah, Patti LaBelle again. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll come to that a little bit more later, but 
yeah, I think the I think the production is great. I think there's some bits I kind of really like, sort of Nelly's vocal style where he does that, and we laugh and we cry together. It's kind of I do like that stuff, but um, the obvious problem is that the lyrics are awful, and <laughs> it's kind of amazing that the lyrics can be so bad, but still not be the worst that we encounter this week but it's a discussion for later i'm sure um the lyrics are unromantic in quite an adolescent way like the the one that stands out like a sore thumb is you make my life so convenient for me what what does that mean (laughs) like you go, you go down to the budgeons and buy me a scratch card without me even having to ask. Oh, girl, it's a good job I hired you as me, you as my PA. <laughs> yeah, you you live near the bus stop. It's great. <laughs> I don't have to walk very far. I don't you know. Again, it's just I, and well, there's that, and there's also like I know I said some fucked up things to you before, but girl, you know I didn't mean it. So, kind of two ways you can view that. Do you mean that? You you didn't mean it because if you do, that is kind of the thought must have been swimming around in your head before it fell out of your mouth. So you a part of you must have meant it, or do you mean that you didn't mean to say it, but you were obviously thinking it? Because either way, it's it's not great. You you don't sound like you're entirely committed to this. It sounds more like a late night booty call, and maybe that's yes. what it is. Maybe that is just him on his phone at two in the morning, like, oh man, I, I really kind of miss her because there's, you're just doing nothing else and you start to get a bit rosy-tinted glasses about things and reflecting on the past like that. But yeah, again, I think just that paired with like Jaheem's backing vocals as well is like, I'm sorry. It's like... <laughs> Are you though? Are you really? Or is this just a way for you to pass the time? And I think aside from that, just going back to the Patti LaBelle sample, I feel like Nelly's formula here is becoming a bit too obvious. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it, I mean, it clearly worked because it got to number one here, but it feels like, like you say, Andy, it's a lesser version of Dilemma in more ways than one. That at least had you know, the Kelly Rowland parts, which were probably the best part. And that one seems to be a lot more fondly remembered, given that I've just heard it on an advert this week. Me too, yes. Whereas with my place, I don't think I've heard it since... Well, I've not heard it before we started doing this run for the podcast. It seems to have kind of been lost to time. And I wonder if in 2004, like, sure, he has another number one, but at this time, it feels like Southern hip-hop is becoming a very crowded field. And a lot of people are doing what Nelly does and kind of improving on it or taking it and giving it a bit more of a raw edge. So while never he, he never completely went away, but I feel at this point he's maybe become a bit too commercial and ubiquitous for his own good. And the next time we see him will be his most commercial and ubiquitous song yet. Um, just a quick note on Flap Your Wings. It's very bad. 
it's shaking <laughs> hot in here. Just don't listen to it. It's really awful. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, really what, bad. it's interesting what you say about becoming a crowded market because the thing about this sort of thing, when I say it's like it's the cliche, is that yeah, because so many other people did it. It's he Nelly may be good at this sort of thing, but there's like no barrier to entry. Like it's very no, easily replicable. You know, with other big breakout stars of the time, it's like you kind of get the sense that no one else couldn't quite do it as good as them with certain genres. But with this, it's like uh, anyone can kind of do this, and it 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 almost feels a bit like a parody of the genre. Like it's that much of a cliche. It feels like someone on YouTube having a mess about like recreating early noughties R and B rather than an actual artifact of the time. And that's it's not a good feeling when you're getting that vibe off a song, so, yeah. Yeah, and you, you give it a year and you'll have, like, Akon and T-Pain showing up. The whole landscape just kind of shifts. Like, we've said it before, but 2007 is very different to 2004. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Miles away. Yeah. Um, I'll get my comments on Flappy Wings out of the way. Um, like you were saying, Lizzie, imagine hot in here, but without any redeeming features or memorable <laughs> features or, yeah, it's just, it's crap. And it brings the quality of the whole it single down. I think the only thing that I seem to have absorbed from the song and consider valuable is that one line that Drake says in fucking Problems by ASAP Rocky now has context, which is just get your eagle on, like... That's it. That's the only thing I can think of where it's like, oh, that's where he got that from. Yeah, pointless. Um, my place, though, um, sounds lovely. Like, lovely vibe. feel like it picks up from Dilemma, progresses from that slightly. You can tell it's still in love with a lot of, like, 70s soul, like you were saying, the Patti LaBelle thing, the sample. You can feel the romance and the evocations of courtship. The lovely vocals from Jaheem, the come on over to my place and it's all very heavenly and smooth but like it just it, this should be a song about a guy reaching out to a girl who's upset and saying listen I can make it all better like I'll take care of you come on over to my place but that isn't really what the song is about um, and it's a shame <laughs> that there's no real substance to anything that Nelly's saying or at least the substance doesn't match the atmosphere it feels like that bit in you know like that I think it's like the end of season 2 of Peep Show when Jez's uncle is dying and he turns to Christianity in his final days in that hospice and they go and visit him and they talk to him about how he's feeling and his new faith and all that. And then it cuts to Jez's internal monologue and he says, yeah, that's nice. Ray's such a nice guy. What a shame everything he believes is total rubbish. And it feels a bit this way with my place where it's like, yeah, this is nice. Nelly's such a nice guy. What a shame that everything he's saying is like complete bollocks because the lyrics are from a different song. Like, I think it creates a problem when it comes to settling into an atmosphere with this, and I'm distracted. I really want to swim in the instrumental, but I find myself getting <laughs> just increasingly annoyed by the content of the song. The kind of, like you were saying, the kind of petulant adolescent content of it that isn't petulant and adolescent in an endearing way to me because it isn't over in three and a half minutes. Like, even the radio edit of this is four and a half minutes long, and... I'm just like, I have spent too long with you to have any more patience. And so I think this is fine. As a double A side, it gets like a really mild thumbs up overall. If it were just my place, 
um, I would have a more positive reading of it overall. You know, like a, a decent thumbs up, but I think that with Flappy Wings, it drags it down to like a mild to light thumbs up, to be honest. Uh, maybe yeah. just a quick, you know, like, uh, come see, come saw, kind of like shake of the hand sort of thing. It's fine overall. I get the idea behind the two albums, but, you know, I think if you actually look at people's opinions of those albums as opposed to the the sales and the fact that nobody really remembers that he released them conjointly, um, I think that it's just another one of those cases where it's like, could this not have just been a single album with the best of both on it? You know, like... I don't know if both albums go for a different vibe or whatever, because Sweat and Suit, it's like, you know, Suit is like, yeah, classy Nelly, whereas, like, Sweat is like, it's getting hard in here, part two, but not as good. That's exactly it. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe they could have made that work a bit better. Maybe nobody would have noticed. Maybe they would have made half the amount of money that they made but i mean that's your answer yeah, yeah. yes it yeah. is that is that is exactly it but yeah it's unfortunately uh i think a symptom of the cd age that a lot of people with a lot of money and not a lot of ideas think oh fuck it yeah we've got like two hours to play with let's just do it let's just fill every corner of it <laughs> and put and we'll put a hidden track on as well just for you know just for people who are like i mean i don't know if these albums did this but it, it was an annoying habit of the cd age to put a hidden track at the oh, start yeah. of the album where you'd have to yeah put it in and then immediately press rewind and just ugh, yeah but yeah <laughs> anything more to say about my place slash flap your wings no no i don't think so me neither so we'll move swiftly on to the next single this week which is this This is Real To Me by Brian McFadden. Released as the lead single from his debut studio album titled Irish Sun, Real To Me is the first single to be released by Brian McFadden in the UK and his first to reach number one. However, this is the last time that we'll be discussing Brian on this podcast. No. Real To Me went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Nelly off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. 
In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 34,000 copies and beat competition from That Girl by McFly, which got to number three. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Real To Me fell five places to number six. By the time it was done on the charts, though, it had been inside the top 100 for 19 weeks, and yet the song has never been given any official certification by the British phonographic industry. This is mad. This is mad to me. So it was, it dropped five (laughs) places to number six, but somehow stayed in the chart for 19 weeks, but somehow wasn't, it it didn't sell 200,000 copies despite being in the charts for nearly half a year. Like, how, how is how are any of those individual things possible? I <laughs> just I have absolutely no idea. Um, it's gonna hurt my head if I sit and think about it too much. So Lizzie, real to me, Brian McFadden, go. Yeah, I mean I can't help but wonder if you know those early weeks of January where nobody's released anything, and so you can you can basically sell a couple of hundred copies and get in the charts at least at this point. Hmm. Maybe it's that kind of thing. Yeah. But one new entry says it wasn't a yeah, particularly busy that, week. Yeah, like that one week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, this song is very clearly an attempt to relaunch Brian as the new Robbie Williams, especially as this and I think most of the album is co-written by Guy Chambers. But it begs the question, why do we need a new Robbie Williams when we still have the real Robbie Williams releasing singles? <laughs> like, the production... You know what I mean? We've got Robbie Williams at home. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Robbie Williams at home, and it's like, this is just the, the chalk ice version of Robbie Williams. <laughs> but, yeah, the production just sounds like another Westlife single. It could be any of them. And the lyrics are... A pretty embarrassing take on what Robbie Williams had been doing for a couple of years before this point. Like, Robbie himself would often sing about the pressures of fame and being surrounded by artifice and decadence. It was kind of his specialty. But I'm struggling to think of a song of his from before this time which was as on the nose as this one. Like, there's no subtext here. It's all text. Like, big capital letters, billboard 20 metres high, just text. (laughs) That's all this is. And I can't for the life of me imagine that this sort of thing is why Brian was so desperate to break out of Westlife. Like, don't get me wrong. Leaving one of the biggest groups in the country at the height of their popularity to pursue your own musical interests is admirable, to say the least. I'd extend that to... Charlie Simpson, Paul Gattamall, Jerry Halliwell, countless others throughout the years. It's not a betrayal of your fans to want more creative freedom to express yourself. But if you have nothing worthwhile to say, like in the case of this song, those same fans aren't necessarily going to follow you on your journey. Like Brian's debut solo album came out only two months after this. In the run-up to Christmas, no less. And it got as high as number 24 in the UK. Yikes. Oof. His next album in 2008 failed to even chart in the UK or Ireland. Like, he's not completely done as a chart concern. He has a couple of top 10 hits and top 40 hits here and there. But it's a far cry from the days where a single he featured on 
was almost guaranteed to reach number one. And those days were only like a year before this. But still, yeah. if this song is to go by, he's probably not all that bothered. He'd rather invite the family round and drink some English tea and raise up his finger and watch football on TV. Oh, TV! <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, dear. Yes, Andy, how, how are we feeling about this one? Well, I'm actually really pleasantly surprised that after the awfulness of my place, um, that I, it's actually really improved this week. Is what I would be saying if that girl by McFly got to number one. Um, but <laughs> that's not the case. Um, and had it no, in the first half. Not, not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is uh, this is not an improvement. Um, it's a bit rubbish, isn't it? There is the additional context to this, which I think explains somewhat why he managed to somehow pull a number one out of nowhere. That yes, he left he left Westlife, which were a big thing, but there is also the Kerry and Brian element to all this as well. Yes, um, that Kerry. Then McFadden, Kerry Katona, who had been on I'm a Celebrity at the start of this year and won it, she was married to Brian McFadden at the time and then right at the peak of both of their fame as a power couple, they got divorced. And that was the big sort of tabloid undercurrent that propelled this solo career of his. And I have no memory of this song whatsoever. And I'm going to come to that because I think that's worth talking about. I have no memory of this song whatsoever. But I do have a memory of sitting down to watch a chat show. I think it would have been like Graham Norton or something. Past my bedtime because I was a huge fan at the time of Franz Ferdinand. They were one of the first bands I was really into. And my mum said, oh, Franz Ferdinand are on this show. Do you want to come down and watch it? And they went on for ages. I had to sit through the whole show. Most of which was taken up by Brian McFadden sat there on the couch sullenly talking about his breakup from Kerry and then presumably, but I can't remember, presumably plugging this single. So I think that's kind of what was going on. I think it's a bit of a Peter Andre mysterious girl slash insania thing happening here. Um, and it's sort of best written off as a pop culture thing that was happening rather than the song being any good. But the song is what we've got. The song is what we're left with. Um, I completely agree with you, Lizzie, that, you know... It, it's kind of faux Robbie Williams that it's just kind of pointless, I think. I'm really glad you mentioned Jerry Halliwell, because I was going to mention Jerry as well, because it's interesting that she left probably the biggest pop group in the world at the time and actually was vindicated. For a few years, she was really successful. She had like three number one singles, most yeah. of which is still remembered to this day. Fair enough, she did really well. And we got bagged up out of it, which I'll always be grateful for. But Of course. But I think it kind of might have been a bad thing for the world in general that she did that and got a lot of success because it gave everyone the idea of doing it. Um, and Brian McFadden is one of many. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to do so because there are plenty of artists who go with it and do well. You know, there always have been, going right back to like Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. And in more recent times, you know, Harry Styles has made such a success of it and made some really good pop music. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like you said, Lizzie, you know, if you've got nothing to offer, then don't do it just because that's the thing that people do. You know, did the world really need to hear what was going on in Brian McFadden's head? No offence to the guy. But, you know, from the excerpts we've heard of Westlife's autobiography... They're not the most interesting bunch of people. They've not really got a sense of voice or artistry, <laughs> to be honest. They're some nice-looking, nice-voiced guys from Ireland who, you know, 
make you feel like you're loved and like you're going to be swept off to heaven. If it's just one of them and they're being a bit moodier and going on about the personal pressures on their shoulders, am I interested? No, I am not interested. Um, the, I think the comparison I would make with Robbie is that when Robbie does songs about this kind of subject, like Strong, for example, you I know that Robbie's a showman and a bit of a faker and all that, and that's fine, that is what it is, but you do get the sense that there is at least some sincerity to that that like he, he there is some actual genuine feeling from him there about you know his spectacular rise to fame and how it's not the most healthy thing in the world to deal with yeah i just don't really get that authenticity here to me this feels more like edgy you know oh i don't care about the fame i don't care about the money you know like sort of hipster quality almost of like oh you know i wish this song wouldn't get to number one because i really want to be underground like it's got that kind of vibe <laughs> um you know which i just really hate like i i don't like it when people kind of pretend to not be what they are because i'm all for people reinventing themselves but brian you come from westlife you are not some you know songster who is travelling around in his car entertaining bars. You are one of Westlife. You know, it's like Matt Cardle tried to do this when he won the X Factor, where he gave this interview, which I thought was really funny, where he said he was really upset that after he won the X Factor, he was at an awards show and tried to sit with Korn at an awards show and, like, <laughs> get on with them. And they weren't talking to him, and he didn't understand why. It's like, because you're an X Factor winner, and they're Korn. Yeah. Like, this is, not, this is not rocket science. And I'm not saying people need to stay in their lane like that, but I do think... Recognise what you are, recognise what your fan base is, what your target audience is, recognise the reason you're famous, and don't reject that purely because you're not interested. It just uh, it just feels petulant and silly. So I'm glad that this is the only uh, number one that he has, and I've really gone in on him here in a way that I didn't mean to, because you know he's probably a perfectly nice guy. But I think this is just a real example of something that, is propelled by celebrity and is propelled by ego rather than being propelled by any kind of musical quality. So it's kind of everything I dislike. And the song itself is just like completely generic, unmemorable, you know, nothing to say about it really. So it's a big old thumbs down from me. Do better next time, Brian. If Well, there won't be a next time, but, you know, <laughs> I hope that you did and we just never heard it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's ever made this comparison before or ever will again, but... <laughs> It's it's kind of like Imagine by John Lennon Whoa. in the way of like you've been given this unimaginable like privilege and luxury and you're sort of turning your nose up at it. It is a bit like I don't know, just maybe I don't know, read the room a bit. Like who do you think put yeah. you there? I just, yeah. it, if you don't he, want that, we'll just stop buying your records. It's fine. But the thing is that we've talked about Robbie Williams and we've talked about um, John Lennon there as well. But it's like Brian McFadden, he's not in that league. He he was never individually that famous. Yes, he had a bit of a moment in the sun with the whole Brian and Kerry thing. But like, it was a moment in the sun. It was 15 minutes of fame. And he seems to have not recognised that here. Like... I don't know. I'm, I think I'm being a bit mean, and I think it's probably a little bit of retrospect as well, because maybe, you know, he thought that it could have been a really big solo career, because I, you know, again, with Harry Styles, I really doubted that that was ever going to work out, and it did. So maybe this is hindsight here, but it just looks silly. It all looks a bit cringe, to be honest. I think with, like, 
a couple of small tweaks, it could have been okay. Like, I don't think the song would have been like, amazing or anything, but if it had been framed as more like, I'm just like really tired from years of doing that because I've, I've not been able to see my family or my friends and I miss those home comforts. But instead it's more like, oh, that's not real to me. Mm. One of the, that, what's real to me is football. And like, okay, <laughs> well, off. A few of the things I wanted to mention. First of all, it, it really made me laugh when I thought of this. That, you know who would really like this song? Michael Owen. Because Michael Oh, yeah, Owen, yes. <laughs> Michael Owen, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show before. He has this thing, doesn't he, where he, he can't tolerate fiction. He can't watch films because they're not real <laughs> and he doesn't understand yeah. the point of anything if it's not real. So he would love this song. <laughs> he doesn't like films because they're not real to me. And the other thing, I don't know if you do notice this as well, but randomly, like, completely stealing the melody of Complicated by Avril Lavigne at the very end, just for two lines... He has two oh, yeah. lines at the very end as a little outro. They go like, da-da, da-da-da-da-da. Like, what the hell, yes. Brian? That was random. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, I agree with you too. I think this is a very kind of naked attempt to create Brian, Adam- uh, Brian McFadden in this image of Robbie Williams. Um, but it just makes Brian sound like the most boring man in the world because like, <laughs> the thing with Robbie Williams is that like, when you dig into his soul slightly, it's clear that it's been affected by years of interesting things whereas like you know because Robbie was like a wild card in a a pop group whereas Brian McFadden was just in Westlife as well groomed as the rest of them until the tabloids got involved but that was only after he left Westlife you know it's like over the years I've heard stories about what Robbie Williams was like while he was in Take That and it was like he needed to go it alone. Otherwise, he would have broken Take That Apart. You know, like, it, it, they would have probably split up sooner if he'd stayed because he was causing a lot of havoc for a lot of people. Um, and it was often not always guaranteed that they would get to the next city they were supposed to be playing in and have Robbie turn up on time and things like this. Um, but with Brian McFadden, don't really remember any of that being the case. Like, he just kind of went solo, and then they tried to make him a bit of a bad boy and a bit of, like, oh, he's got a beard now, and that sort of thing. Like, they all know, bought the, a car once. Yeah, like, yeah. And, like, the single cover is him looking in a, a mirror at a reflection of his former self from 1999, and it's like, we're only five years on from this, and, like, the only difference is that you don't have bleached blonde hair anymore. Um, that's about it. And so they try and rough it up with this, like, you know, oh, he's a rock mu- he's a rock musician now, and it's like he's making music that's real to him. And what we get is, we'll invite the family round, drink some English tea, then I raise up my finger and watch football on TV. Like, <laughs> none of this really seems to vibe together either. Like, why would you sing a song about how you want things to stay quiet and, you know, authentic and... And Rock and roll! Yeah, but then put images of rebellion in there, like raising your middle finger up. And I don't know, it feels kind of mixed up to me. Like, I definitely appreciate the idea where Brian's saying that, like, his form of rebellion is authenticity and taking care of what's mine and that sort of thing. Home life, you know, that kind of thing. You know, he's sick of the false nature of fame. But I'm just not convinced that he really believes any of this. It all just feels no. very curated to within an inch of its life and not in a way that 
feels like Brian McFadden is up to the task of playing the character that they've designed for him in this song. And the arrangement as well, it's kind of so-so. It's kind of like... It's kind of like a below-par version of what Take That came back with, like, two years after this. You know, that kind of post-Brit-pop soft rock thing. But obviously, this doesn't have Gary Barlow's gorgeous ear for melody Mm. um, and working his way around a piano. Because we'll get to Patience and we'll get to Shine and I will extol the virtues of those at the time. But this just feels a bit... It just gets awfully close to Ernest Mampain's Coffee Pop Classics. Um, And I can't really look beyond that, to be honest. Um, I don't know if it's pie-hole worthy. I'll think about it over the course of the next song. But I I think it's Mm. probably, while I've been talking about it, I've realised I've had very little to say about it that's particularly positive. Because like you, Andy, this this space where this song was number one is a void in my memory. It's like, my place is number one, and then nothing is number one, and then we have what's coming next. And like, I, I, I mean, obviously that's on me, but like I look back and I'm like, oh, when I was putting the list together for this show, like four years ago, you know, first putting the playlist together when we first had the idea, I was sort of like, What? Uh, this i don't remember this yeah. at all like it makes sense that brian mcfadden would have a number one right now but like it only makes sense it doesn't like actually it, there's no actual place in my memory where like oh yes brian mcfadden had the number one single like i just do not remember it i just feel like i was totally out of the loop maybe that's part of it which is just that i am like the opposite of the demographic or was the opposite of the demographic my mum wasn't really into westlife she didn't really like him that much and so she didn't buy any she was in to take that and robbie she was the generation before and so she stuck with robbie and maybe like because I didn't really hear it on the radio as much and because it didn't stick around at the top of the charts for very long. Um, You know, it stayed around in the top 100, but it could have, for all I know, languished between, like, number 70 and number 100 for, like, 10 weeks. Like, you know, it just... It did. Yes. So it it feels like maybe I've just missed it, but also there are tons of songs that we've done so far that I completely missed, and then I'm looking back and I'm like... Oh, no, wait, I do sort of remember this. Or at least if I don't remember it, then it brings something and I'm like, well, yeah, you know, this is, you know, first time I've heard this ever. And it's, yeah, great, but this is totally new to me. Um, and, yeah, uh, left less of an impression of a song that I feel we should mention um, from seven years afterwards uh, that Brian McFadden did, which was like his big jump into like, you know, when everybody was writing their version of like, um, a club banger where everybody was giving it a go. Uh, Brian McFadden kind of gave his a go and it ended up um, a disaster in more ways than one. I'll just read the Wikipedia page and some lyrics from the song title, which is Just the Way You Are in brackets, Drunk at the Bar. It's a song by the Irish singer Brian McFadden. The song was written and produced by McFadden and a guy called Robert Conley. The single was released on the 24th of February 2011, peaking at number 49 in Australia. A video for the song was not released as it was cancelled. The song has been (laughs) criticised as a glorification of date rape. McFadden cancelled the shooting of a proposed video for the song. He asked that the song not be played on the radio and pledged via his Twitter account to donate all proceeds from the song to rape victims. Now, 
that's very good of you, Brian, uh, because I think it's one of those where you work on a song, you show it to the public, and then the public go, what are you doing? So normally I would sort of forgive him for sort of going, yeah, okay, I can see how that's implied. I didn't realize it when I was writing it, but I get it now. But it's clear that the donating the proceeds, etc., etc., to rape charities and apologizing on Twitter and stuff is definitely a label decision because I don't know how you could write and perform these lyrics a million times and not see what's going on here and that what's going on might not be the best thing. Oh, no. um, so this is the chorus. I like you oh. just the way you are. Drunk as shit, dancing at the bar. I like it. Oh. And, oh god, it gets worse. And I can't wait to get you home so I can do some damage. <gasps> Jesus. <laughs> I like you just the way you are. Jump in the back seat of my car because I like it. And I can't wait to get you home so I can take advantage. Oh, um, Christ. No. Like, it's one of those where it's like, this isn't even playing with metaphors. Like, it, you're just saying that you want to, Oh, god. It's, yeah, it's difficult to listen to but it's the only chance we're going to get to talk about Brian McFadden on this show and I, I don't want to cast too many aspersions on Brian McFadden's character or anything like that but that is not a good idea for a song <laughs> at least like it's not like I mean at least he didn't you know come out and say oh um, I was playing a character I wasn't endorsing it like at least the you know because it, it does seem a bit like you know I hope he's playing a character but it I don't think that he was. Um, it just seems a bit a fantasy, maybe. Like, you know, because when you're writing pop songs, you don't always write about your experiences. You try and imagine your own experiences and, you know, go from there. But yes, not great. Still, um, did you say it got to number 49 in Australia? Number 49 in Australia, yeah. What? Why? <laughs> Apparently he has a bit of a fan base in Australia. If you notice on his Wikipedia That's page... Fine, but... I think people this? honestly just bought it without thinking because if you look on his Wikipedia mm. page, he stops having chinks, chingles, sart, <laughs> singles chart. <laughs> in the, he stops having singles chart in the UK pretty soon after this. Like he has number three, number six, and then like number 28 and that's it. But he continues to have songs reach the charts in Australia. And so maybe that's where that came from. Where it was like, oh, the new Brian McFadden single. I'll check this out. And then it turns out it's dicey uh, and doesn't reach the top 40 over there. And I think the fact yeah. that like he went out and asked, like, oh, don't play this on the radio is like probably one of those where it's like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> God. Like, you know, it is just all in his head. And you can't, you know, it's not a crime to have thoughts, but like, it's a bit skeevy, I think. Uh, well, a bit skeevy. It's very skeevy. Um, I just don't know how you can write the lyric so I can do some damage and not think, hmm, should probably workshop this a bit more before we show it to the public, <laughs> if only to save myself the bother of having to explain. <laughs> just ugh, really, really badly judged. Um, do we have yeah. anything more to say on Real to Me by Brian McFadden? Yeah, one thing. So, uh, just picking up on your point, Rob, about how this just bypassed you entirely, and me too, and I think all three of us. And uh, is it fair to say, would you agree that this is the most obscure number one that we've yet covered on the show? I can't think of anything else as random as this. Like, you see The Trouble With Me was pretty obscure, and The Way To Your Love by Hearsay, and, but I can't really think of anything that all three of us have no memory of. 
just yeah. I think this might I be the most. I would have said never going to leave your them. side. Maybe I kind of remember never that. gonna leave your side, but I would say this is up there with uh, was it was it Black Legend who did um, yeah. you see the trouble with me? Yeah, I think that is up there with this where it's like this was number one. I don't remember this. Like you know, I think it just comes as a consequence of like it's clearly being bought by a group of people that we have no contact with in our lives. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and have had no contact with since. Um, I think this is the most yeah. this song has ever been discussed ever. Probably. <laughs> We're the world's foremost experts on Real to Me by Brian McFadden. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be number one at something. So, oh, yeah. our last song this week is this. This is Call On Me by Eric Prids. Released as a non-album single, Call On Me is Eric Prids' fourth single to be released in the UK and his first to reach number one. However, this is the last time that we'll be discussing him on this podcast. Call On Me went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Brian McFadden off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for three weeks. In its first week at number one, it sold 68,000 copies, beating competition from Love Machine by Girls Aloud, which got to number two, American Idiot by Green Day, which got to number three, and You Had Me by Joss Stone, which got to number nine. In its second week on top, it sold 46,000 copies, beating competition from, big shout out to my mum here, Breeze On By by Donny Osmond, which got to number eight. In its third week at the summit, it sold 34,000 copies, beating competition from I Hope You Dance by Ronan Keating, which got to number two, Flashdance by Deep Dish, which got to number three, Pieces of Me by Ashley Simpson, which got to number four, Leaving New York by R.E.M., which got to number five, and Blinded by the Lights by The Streets, which got to number ten. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Call On Me dropped one place to number two, but it is not the end of Call On Me's UK chart journey, and not to give it away, but we will come back to it another time. Andy, Call On Me by Eric Prids. This is, like, I cannot believe that it beat Love Machine and American Idiot. 
Oh my god, I was gonna do another one of those jokes then of like, oh, this is the best song we've had so far, is what I would be saying. But I don't even have the energy in me to do that, because this beat, American Idiot, a love machine. I just, I need to go away and cry that we got deprived of those two songs. Yeah, oh. agreed. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. this. to be fair, though, this is an improvement on the other two songs, but that's about as low a bar as, you know, a bloody mouse could jump over that. Um, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I think, should we address the elephant in the room straight off, which is the music video? Like, the music video is why mm-hmm. this got so big, and I rewatched it, having not seen it since I was a kid. Um, and, boy howdy, it really is quite titillating, and... Um, it's, it's funny, I remember at the time that this was kind of... It really unlocked a memory that this was a small, like, gay awakening moment for me, this. Because everyone, all of my friends, every lad in the school was like, oh, seen that Call On Me video? And I was just like, yeah, what's what's so interesting? Like, <laughs> it's fine. Did you see Cory the other week? Todd kissed a boy. You know, and um, I was just a bit like, yeah, don't get this. And I started to realise, hmm... Might be a thing in that somewhere. Um, so yes, thank you for it helping me on that journey. But yeah, it, it kind of seems like the main reason, not the only reason, but the main reason this really took off was because of that video, which is something I don't know what my feelings are about because, I mean, everyone in it is willing to perform and I've got no problem with, you know, adult content or anything like that. I'm not any kind of prude. And so I don't think it's exploitative or anything like that. But I do think it's a bit kind of gross that the video is just literally, look at these hot women. You know, it's kind of like FHM culture a little bit. Um, So it it makes me feel a bit gross. But again, this is me like as a, you know, 30-something gay man. So definitely not the target audience. (laughs) Once again, none of the songs this week were made for me, let me tell you that. Um, So yes, it's a good enough remix slash reimagining of um, Valerie which is fine, but I don't really think it's got that much more to it than that. And I really cannot see a world in which this gets this big without that video. And I have to knock a point off for that because it just doesn't stand on its own two feet. I also want to call back a point that I made a few weeks ago about Lola's theme by the Shape Sisters, where I, I it really like was a, thinking about, you know, why... Is that song like better than a lot of other dance tracks of the era and of a lot of other dance tracks in general? And I kind of settled on this thing which I said of like you could forgive that song for not bothering with a verse at all, with not bothering with having any kind of back and forth structure at all, and just having that one thing pretty much repeat all the way through. Because in Lola's theme, that main hook or that main bit in the chorus is so infectious that you could really forgive it for just running with that all the way through. But it's a better song for not doing that, for actually making a song out of this little thing that you've made. Call On Me really needs that. It needs some rise and fall. It needs a bit more to it than just that refrain over and over again. And I know it kind of pulls back and then goes back in a few times, but it's not, like, anything noteworthy, really. And considering it's only less than three minutes long, it really does not fill its time at all. So... Yeah, I mean, it's I can see the appeal of it as a song. Like, it's really good, like gym exercise music. You know, there's no coincidence why that's the purpose of the music video, and it's definitely something that wakes you up and is energetic. And I do like that sound of it. But is this actually particularly remarkable beyond that fairly wild music video? 
No, I don't think so. So it kind of gets a meh for me, to be honest. Yeah, I, I really, I don't think I'll ever settle my feelings on it, to be honest. So, yeah, I don't know. don't really like it, to be honest, but it's somewhere in the middle, yeah. Lizzie, how about you? Yeah, well, I've been delving back into 2004 culture this week. I've been watching a show called Booze Britain. <laughs> yes, I have watched a few episodes of that as well, Lizzie. Thank you very much for that link. Yeah, I've been really indulging in the, the grim end of mid Northeast nightlife in the UK, which is like, the series kind of focuses on like groups of pissed up punters all piling into the only nightclub in town in places like Redcar, Derby and Peterborough. <laughs> Like, whereas heaven sounded towards, like, the platonic ideal of what a nightclub should sound like, the reality is a lot more like Call On Me, which, incidentally, does show up in Booze Britain at least once. I think it's in the first episode when there's a man who drank a pint of Guinness in 10 seconds. I think it was just after we met Burger Barry, who (laughs) proudly told us about the time that he slung a hot dog in someone's face because he wanted it sticking out of both sides. (laughs) It's it's wonderful stuff. It's only the third grimmest documentary on alcohol I've seen. (laughs) But in terms of this song, like, it's almost clinical in its approach. Like, you take a recognisable AC sample, you pair it with a thumping beat, you play it over and over again for three and a half minutes, and then you pair that with a kind of softcore music video, and you watch the money roll in. And we've talked a little bit about the ringtonification of pop music around this time, and I'm sure we'd all agree that that isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think with that in mind, you take that into consideration, it's that the hook becomes the most crucial part of a song. And I don't think anybody can deny that Call On Me has a killer hook. Yeah. The one big complaint about the song for me is that it's pretty much all the song has to offer. Admittedly, that's more than I can say about real to me, but <laughs> it, at the same time, it pales in comparison to something like Heaven or Loneliness or Lola's theme, all of which I just find more engaging and evocative. So I think while people will maybe remember this one more from the period than those other ones, I just find actually sitting down and listening to it is not what I remember. I remember it being a lot more exciting and engaging, and I don't, I haven't had that experience this week. I feel like maybe if I heard this in one of those big super clubs if i heard this at printworks in london or one of those big festivals in ibiza or barcelona or something it would make sense but just as um, a listener on headphones in my bedroom in rainy manchester it's it's okay but i need a little bit more than this okay um oh i've been waiting for this moment to talk about call on me okay uh, by eric prids Ever since we started the podcast, um, this is one of the ones I've been looking forward to the most. Like, more than 99% of the songs I think that we've done uh, so far. Um, Not for the reasons I thought, though. I thought it would be about one thing, but it turns out, the more I've listened to this, literally yesterday, I'm like, oh, I love this. I thought I didn't. I've I've been, but then I realized I've listened to this like 20 times this week. And I'm like, 
And I, I listened to it like 18 times and I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I don't really love this. And then suddenly on like the 19th and 20th listens, I was like, oh, I think this is awesome. So hang on. Um, so I think first off, it has a fantastic relationship with the music video. I almost feel like the song cannot be discussed independently of the music video, which I don't know whether weakens the song or strengthens its ability to evoke a particular time and place. You know, its synergy between audio and visual is so strong that maybe that's a credit to the song. Like you, Andy, still haven't quite worked my mind out totally on a few things, but... I think what the video and the song do together is that they capture the essence of that entire mid-2000s, like, the, or at least as I remember it anyway, this, this sense of, like, this fairly vague sense of liberation and hedonism and, inverted commas, sexual freedom that people imagined would spring into life in the beginning of the 21st century. You know, a new millennium, new century, let's all go wild, etc., etc., but I think it also precisely captures a micro-genre that seemed to live and die between 2002 and 2007. I think for years, you know, pop music and especially pop videos have always been about pushing back the boundaries of what will make people go, oh, when they're watching at home and cover their eye. Like, you just go, no, don't, can't look, that sort of thing. Um, but it between, I would say, like, from Satisfaction, Benny Benassi, up to... I don't know, I can't think of the last one that would try and push this kind of stuff, really. But it's all right. Put your hands up for Detroit by Fede Legrand. That was, yeah, that's a fairly high, you know, that's a fairly high watermark in that kind of, like, you know, in that sort of, like, that little micro genre. But there's, there's probably a couple afterwards I'm forgetting about. But it's, like, this really specific yeah, thing. It's so specific, and I'm fascinated by it. Where it's, like, big-name DJs remix old pop songs, blast them out at 100 miles an hour, fill the music video with sexy women who are, like, gyrating and thrusting and whatnot. And then they just include one guy who can't believe his look. Like, and it this wasn't the first to do it, but I think it's the definitive example. Because you have... Um, for, you know, obviously you have Call of Me, but you also have the video for Somebody to Love by Boogie Pimps, which in that case, it's not one guy who can't believe his look. It's several skydiving babies. Um, you have Falling Stars by Sunset Strippers, which is the one in the wash in the laundrette where that one guy is watching these three women do the laundry while the camera gets loads of upskirt shots. Um, oh, yeah. Out of Touch by United Nations, which features one Daz Sampson, which is where he plays strip poker. It's one guy playing strip poker with a bunch of women. Um, you also have Your Body by Tom Novi, which is that guy being treated to a dance class at a nightclub. Um, Say 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 by Ty Tack, which is the guy who's using the technology to see women in underwear dancing in front of him. All of them feel wrapped up, like you were saying, Andy, in this like FHM sexiest music videos ever you know those countdowns that would be on music channels like in the middle of the day uh and like that was sort of referencing in the last episode like the whole nuts magazine like women etc etc you know women can't do any manual labor and they don't expect they shouldn't expect any help with it on a tuesday or a thursday uh, depending on which era of nuts magazine you're discussing it's all very kind of like oh look at that you know all right you know that sort of like booze britain like you were saying lizzie um and i think that call on me is probably the first example of this that you would show to future historians or aliens or 
historians of the future who are aliens when we've been <laughs> invaded. Um, but I think the crucial thing about this song and video together as a cultural moment is that it's the sound of Britain waking up after Cool Britannia, shaking off the hangover, and deciding to go to the fucking gym. Let's get fit again. Let's go to the gym as a nation. Like, and not only that, but it feels like a big cultural shift towards the idea that gyms are places where you can meet women and meet like-minded people who want to get fit and, you know, like, date and do do all of these things at the same time. It's like, you know, the modern urban human being has a gym membership and dates people who they meet at the gym, like that sort of thing. You know, you're a young urbanite with hormones and an insatiable need to thrust and move and fidget, and so you must, you know, you must exercise your right to dance and run on a treadmill at the same time, if it's possible, because the video is basically a three-minute orgy without any nudity. You know, like, it's, okay, there's a bit of, it's not partial nudity exactly, but, you know, it gets as close to simulating sex and showing as much skin as possible while still getting away with it, on daytime TV, because that moment that that first proper wallop of bass hits, and it matches up with the female, the, the gym leader, the woman pulsing her groin into the camera, and it feels like something intangible and magical happens in that moment, where it's like the, the future of pop, at least for the next five years, just kind of thrusts you in the face. And I think that it's the bass hits in these so in this song matching up with the male because it's not just female genitalia I should say that's heavily you know like shoved up into the camera and titillated as much as you can because you do get a fair few male groin shots of a bulge flopping about in those tiny shorts of the that the, the guy is uh, wearing. Obviously, it's more geared towards the male gaze, but. You do, or at least the straight male gaze, but you do at least get some, you know, you get, they get a very nice, attractive, muscly guy in to also thrust into the camera every now and again. Um, and it's the bass hits matching up with the thrusting of the hips that made me realise, oh, I love this because those bass hits are so compressed and so loud that they basically obliterate Steve Winwood's uh, voice to the point where, you know, they get the call on me but they make it sound like he's going because it's hammering his voice to the floor it's all broken and screwed up it's like the it's like the image of the future thrusting into the face of the past i feel like this picks up also from stuff like make love by maroon F uh, by room five and you see the trouble with me that we mentioned earlier and it makes the decision to go shorter but it goes faster and harder and it means that it gets a bit overbearing, but I think it's a great slice of slightly futuristic sugar. And it's really evocative of a very specific time and place. I feel like it manages to make itself short enough so that the repetition doesn't bother me that much. Um, it, it does become slightly overbearing, but I think it knows the main weapon in its arsenal and it just fires it at you for two and a half minutes with a, occasional breaks so that you go oh well i hope that bit comes back you know like, and so yeah i think it's sort of great um i didn't think i would be saying anything like this to be perfectly honest um but i have to admit um the reason on top of all of that that i've just said that i've been anxious to get to this one is because this is the song that was number one when I first knew or first became aware 
of what the charts really were and started listening on a Sunday. Because as a kid, I, I always knew there was a number one song, but I, you know, I'm a 10-year-old kid or, like, I'm eight, nine-year-old kid. Like, I just thought some unknown entity or music business person just made that decision. Like, oh, this song's going to be number one for a bit because it's on the TV and on the radio a lot, so that makes sense. You know, some guy in an office in a building, you know, in a suit at a desk is like, um, this one is going to be number one this week. I didn't know that the charts were a thing where, like, it was, you know, like, a, there was a competitive element to it, if you know what I mean. But on a Friday afternoon um, in primary school, I mean, year five at this point, uh, we were taken to the brand new ICT suite, uh, as, as they called it at the time. And we were asked to go on the BBC website as, like, you know, like, the school's got, like, all these new computers. And it's like, let's go on the BBC website, because that's a safe place to start. It was all new to me and I just found myself clicking buttons and I stumbled on the Radio 1 website and it was all white and red and you could look at something called the Top 40 and I was like, what's that? And in that moment, I realised that the charts weren't just this thing that gets put together. It was actually made up of all different songs that people were buying and listening to and that there was this competitive element to all these statistics which... I've now realised as I've grown up, statistics are just, like, a thing I like looking at. So, like, there was no hope for me or for the, my future Sunday afternoons, really, in terms of going outside. And I noticed that there was a little play button next to each song where you could listen to, like, 20 seconds or 30 seconds of the song that was in the list. And so I clicked on the little play button and this played. And I remember it being branded onto my brain in an instant and just immediately wanting to go home and listen to this and listen to the chart on Sunday to find out if it was still number one. And from this point on in my life, from whatever day in September, October 2004 onwards, um, I listened to the charts every Sunday afternoon for the next six years. And this is where my relationship and obsession with the charts really begins like, really begins. Like, pop music is a thing I'm interested in when I'm, like, you know, six, seven years old. It's kind of like a passing thing. You know, you have memories of it. You don't really know whether you like songs or not. You just hear them and think, oh, yes, that's on the radio right now. But Call On Me is the beginning of me, like, wanting songs to be number one and, like, wanting to wanting one song to beat another, wanting to listen all Sunday afternoon for three hours as they count down the top 40 realizing that there were other songs out there that didn't get on the radio but still got into the charts and that was like my only chance to hear them and stuff like that and so definitely um nostalgia kind of like giving me um uh, you know like giving this song a bit of a, a an upwards you know an upwards shift in my estimation um but yeah i've been very excited to get to this one because from this point on i feel like my memories of of all of the songs are really, really clear now. And Call On Me is, is the beginning point um, for that. I think that despite all, despite all of this, it was literally up until like last night, it on, I only realized last night how much I actually like it. And I don't like it for reasons that I normally like other songs, but I realized that this is just so, when we've been doing our research, I've been enjoying the fact that this is just so easy to just 
yeah, I'll, I'll listen to that. Like, you know, if I'm walking to the shop, I'll, like, I'll just get a quick bit of call on me. I'll just get that hit, you know, that sugar rush that it kind of gives you. Um, I totally understand that, like, it does not develop much. Um, it does not do... It, it has a slight grasp of dynamics. You know, it understands the loud and quiet. Um, it doesn't really do much with the rest of Valerie either. Um, and so it just kind of picks the best bit and plays it the most often. Um, I obviously wasn't going to nightclubs and stuff like this um, and stuff like that. And so I don't really have any memories of it in a live setting. It, like you, Lizzie, it's all been in my bedroom or just through headphones. Um, but yeah, I sort of love this. Um which has really been unexpected. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, if if this podcast ever gets given like a social network style film, I think that's the first scene. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of picturing the alternate universe where you go into that ICT room two weeks earlier <laughs> and you hear real to me. It's like, oh God, I, I actually hate pop music. You never pay attention <laughs> yeah, to the Yeah, who knows? Again. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame that it's not Love Machine or American Idiot that I have this relationship with because I like those songs so much more than this one. But I think I love this more than I like it, which is the first time I've said this on the show, on the show I think. Um, I think The Nation did kind of, in the same way it did with Lola Steam, it felt like The Nation kind of stopped for a second and was sort of like, oh, yeah, like this is, you know, I can get on board with this. But I do think it's the the sound of like you say, people beginning to accept that the 90s are gone um, and they have to become a new person in the new millennium, etc., etc. But do we have anything more to say about, well, any of the songs that we've covered this week, but especially Call On Me? No, but I really liked your um, piece on that, Rob. That was lovely. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank I you feel like much. Burger Barry would be very proud of us. <laughs> Shout out Burger Barry. If he's po- yeah. He may still be doing that job. Who knows? I- I think he's passed on. Yes, oh. I do also wonder that as well. But who, you know, here's hoping. Who knows Burger Barry? Can, can we get in touch with him? Um, before we go, we're just going to check. Uh, my place, flap your wings. Uh, that's not going in the vault or the pie hole for me. What about you, Andy? Uh, it's going in the pie hole. Cool. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hated it. Okay. Um, Lizzie, you're not going to put it in the pie hole, I presume, judging by that reaction. But what about the vault? If they were individual signals, um, flap your wings would be going in the pie hole. But together, it's just kind of, yeah, not going in either. Yeah, yeah. Um, real to me, um, I think I'm going to put that in the pie hole. Actually, what about yeah. you, Lizzie? I'm definitely putting it in the pie hole. As Andy, that I. sounded like definitely. a yes from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And call on me by Eric Prids. Is that going in the pie hole or the vault for you, Lizzie? Not for me. And Andy? Not for me. Okay, I think I'm just going to sneak it in to the vault, only slightly. Fair enough. Um, and it's not a decision I had settled on 24 hours ago. Um, but hey, we need some, you know, we need some more entries from me for the vault and the pie hole. So, you know, I need to be <laughs> slightly harsher on some songs and slightly, slightly nicer to others. Um, that is it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. When we come back, um, we're going to slightly change the format. Well, not change the format, but just extend the next episode because we realised we were so close to Christmas and we thought, why not get us there? So next week, 
we are going to be covering the period between the 10th of October and the 4th of December. So we're getting right up to Christmas. We're going to be out of 2004 in a couple of weeks and we'll be full speed ahead for 2005. Thank you very much for listening again this week and we will see you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye. See ya.